Okay, um, so this is part two. Um, at the end of uh, the end of part one, uh, Joe Weinstein asked a really, really good question. Uh, a good enough question that I think I probably have to start over, although not, although, um, not you know, going, going faster than we did last time. And I think I realized from the conversation last time, which I thank you all for, that I was probably trying to go too fast in getting to the really hard cases in sure number two. So I'm going to presume that we're continuing. Uh, there's at least a part three next week, and I want to, and I'll be a little bit less um, less ambitious in terms of content, uh, perhaps today. Um, although I do have um, I do have uh, high ambitions in terms of the source sheet, which is very long. Um, but I, I think that we need to go through all of it in order to establish things. So what I so I'm going to briefly summarize what we did um, last time, as I understand it, and end up at the right, but trying to take into account the question that Dove asked at the end of last year. Uh, so what I said was that um, there's a there's a workbook called Alternatives in Jewish Bioethics by Professor uh, Zohar, who said that there's a fundamental contradiction between the discourse of halacha and the discourse of ethics. The discourse of ethics, you have to make arguments that are that are accessible to everyone, meaning whether or not they share any private faith commitments, and have to apply equally to everybody. Uh, right, you can't introduce distinctions among moral agents in terms of uh, either their duties or your responsibilities to them. And that halacha fails all these criteria because it depends on belief and revelation, and it um, and it makes distinctions among Jews and non-Jews um, in in terms of in terms of obligations, if not in terms of of, of duties towards, which is a, a separate issue. And therefore, halacha and ethics are the twain shall never meet. Um, and then I suggested that the that there's a bridge. Which is offered by uh, Dr. Benjamin Freeman's in front of and his work, Duty and Healing, where he said, right, where in his work as a as a as an Orthodox Jew functioning as a clinical clinical ethicist, what he would do was adopt the interpretations of halacha that were most consonant with Professor Zohar's criteria, although he didn't quote them, Professor Zohar, but he would adopt the, he would adopt the interpretations of halacha that were uh, universally accessible, which just mean that they were rational. They, that you could make rational arguments for them and not just arguments based on tradition on tradition or text for them. And secondly, the interpretations that would um, apply to all moral agents equally. So the question we talked about briefly last time is that's you know, that that's not necessarily for most of us, for most post-game traditionally, that's not the criterion by which you evaluate halakhic arguments in many circumstances. Um, but here we have an interest in doing that, which is that we wish we want to, and perhaps we have an obligation to, uh, I think we have an obligation to participate in um, both the discourse, the ethical discourse in the medical profession and practically in the medical profession. And if we allow, uh, if we say that the only way we can do that is on our own terms, uh, so then basically those, those all become impossible. And then I said that there is a, um, that the case of, um, the case of triage is actually a really good case for talking about where the uh, talking about where uh, for adopting interpretations of halacha that are most consonant with uh, criteria for ethics and to do in a sense halachic um, halachic um, I would say halachic halachic medical ethics as opposed to medical halacha because the Gemara itself says that it's fundamentally framed that the, the core idea of of triage and halacha is grounded in a svara, and that that svara is actually prior to Torah. It's not a svara derived from Torah. It has 
it has no um it, it therefore it is explicitly something which has uh which is universally accessible because you're supposed to know it before you come to torah and that's the uh, the Gemara's answer to the question of how we know that you're not that you're not allowed to violate the prohibition of ritzicha in order to save your own life. Um, the Gemara says that's ritzicha um, How do we know that you cannot? Um, you know that you cannot kill or you, can't, or you cannot violate the asur of ritzicha or shlichut damim, which is a formulation I prefer for reasons that may become evident later in the shir, in order to um, save your life. Svarahu, the Gemara says that's a svara. We pointed out last time, and I'll, I'll share the screen now and go to the source sheet. We pointed out last time that, um, sorry, that didn't work. Um, pointed out last time, sorry. Um, pointed out last time that the um, that the way the Gemara sets it up is that the um, halacha of, uh, of that you, you can't, they have to give it your life rather than commit ritzicha is the basis for interpreting the hekesh between ritzicha and um, and, adult, and, and adultery in the Gemara, which means that you wouldn't interpret that pasuk unless you already knew the, that that there was this farah for ritzicha. Okay, so here's the, the key line: the Gemara. The Gemara says, "Ritzeach gufeim alan." How do we know that you cannot commit ritzicha um, to save your life? Svarahu, and then it tells you a story. The story is that X comes, right? That somebody's somebody, right? Mafia don feudal or whatever comes to X and says, "Kill Y or I kill you." And he comes and asks the Shiloh, can I kill Y in order, to, in order to save myself? And the answer is no. Let them kill you um, rather, than, rather than kill him. Who says your blood is redder than his or sweeter than his? Maybe the other person's blood is redder. Now, I argued last time is that there are two components here. One component is the legal component, let them kill, kill you and you not kill, which seems focused on the action. And the other is the personal component, who says your blood is redder than his? Maybe his blood is better than yours. And, and depending on whether you focus on the legal equation between um, Ritzicha and, um, and the obligation to save your life, or on the personal equation, you can get very different answers as to how this plays out. Um, okay, so we, we pointed out last time that there is a, um, there, there a Tosfut who seems to focus it on the person, personal because he says you can reverse the argument and if the choice is whether to actively get yourself killed, not kill yourself, but actively get yourself killed, or passively uh, allow someone else to, uh, to die, you're allowed to passively allow the other person to die because as far as reversible, you can say, Adarabba, right? Just the contrary. Maybe my blood is redder than his. Okay, so Tostas thinks that this just that we have an equivalence on the case level, which always generates passivity. Uh, now, I argued that um, Rabbi Chaim Halevi, um, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, claimed that the Rambam disagreed with Tosfut, that the Rambam thought that you even had to die rather than passively be the cause of someone else's death, or at least rather than passively commit something that would be defined legally as shrikhut damim. And the question was why? And what I explained, what Rechaim explained, as I, under, as I understood Rechaim, is that the question is asked, the question whose blood is redder is never asked in specific cases. It's only asked legislatively. When I decide how I deal with a conflict of laws, on the one hand, I have an obligation not to kill. And on the other hand, I have an obligation to preserve life. And at this point, we're not making a distinction between my life and anyone else's life. So Rabbi Chaim says that really the way we think about it 
is that there's a presumption that you have to that you're not allowed to kill, and then there's there, there's a presumption you're not allowed to follow any laws. You're not allowed to violate any laws of the Torah under any circumstances. Then there's an exception which says v'chaybem, which says that sometimes you can violate the law to save your life. And now our question is: Does that exception v'chaybem apply to mitzvot that uh, the violation of which result in somebody else's death? And Rechaim says, since you can't know in advance whose blood is redder, because it could be that you're the X, or it could be you're the Y. It could be you're the one who is right, whom we're told kill somebody, or it could be the one who somebody else says to kill you. And therefore, says um, says Rechaim, since the question is asked at the legislative level, when you can't ask whose blood is redder, therefore, in practice, you always you always end up choosing the other person's blood. Okay, so now here. Now, what I argued is that this is a fundamental ethical position, and I argued that the fundamental ethical commitment which the halacha sets up here and argues is really prior to Torah, is this idea that you can't say who's, that you can't say whose blood is redder, and I translated that into as you can't act in such a way that indicates that you give one person's life more ontological value than another. Um, and in other contexts, in the context of brain death, in the context of uh, laws about laws laws um, about uh, medical medically assisted suicide, and the context of um, PIG of uh, PIGD and CRISPR, I have argued that actually this can be translated into uh, the Kantian formulation that you always have to treat human beings as a means rather than an end. Um, but then um, pointed out uh, pointed out that Rav Chaim said that his proof that the Ramos position is correct, as opposed to Tosfut, is from a Gemara above Messiah. The Gemara above Messiah, um, for our purposes, right, leads, uh, right, claims that what matters to us is if it presents a, a lifeboat ethics case, uh, the classic Jewish lifeboat ethics case, two people in the desert, one of them holding a canteen of water, they both drink, they both die without reaching civilization, one of them drinks, um, that, person survi- that person survives long-term, doesn't die of thirst, uh, but the other person dies more rapidly because they don't have water. So Ben Batoras says, rather have them both drink and um, let, let neither of them see the other one die. And Rabbi Akiva says, no, this is a pasuk which says, which means that your life precedes the life of your, um, the life of your friend. So Rav Chaim says that it's the fact that we need a pasuk, right, tells you that without the pasuk, we would say that both of you um, that both of you should drink and die, which suggests that Tosfut is wrong because if Tosfut are right, you should always be able to keep the water you have. All right. So Rav Chaim says that the um, that the fact that we need Rabbi Kivas pasuk to tell us that um, that the person with the water is allowed to keep it implies that the Rambam is right that really the the um, the law as we understood it um, back in our initial context. Um, right, the law, the the, um, the the law over here, the svar, the way we translate the svar into law, should yield the result that you have to split the water because each of you has to hand it to the other, as opposed to the as opposed to the result um, which actually emerges, Rabbi Akiva, which we're going to presume be paskin like, which is that you get to keep the water. So, uh, Joe Weinstein um, blew up the shear at the end of it by saying that, hang on a sec. You're telling me there's a svara which is prior to everything in Torah, and this is the fundamental principle of Torah, and everything else has to be justified in accordance with it, and that's going to allow you 
uh, to say that in this case, you're actually engaging in normative halachic discourse when you pick the interpretation that is most consonant with rationality, because that's what the Torah says here. But how is that compatible with a claim that there's a pasuk which overrules this Torah? Right, how can that right, How can that be? I think that's a that's a reasonable formulation of the question that Dove asked. So what I tried to um, what I tried to begin answering at the end of the last year, and I'm going to and I'm going to do in greater depth now, is um, is this, uh, actually, so I want to do I want to do um, one more thing before I answer that question. I think that's a great question. I want to complicate it a little bit more. Um, and then having complicated a little bit more, then I want to come back, come back to that question. So um, what, I, what I said in the presentation, and I'm still doing it for you, is I'm just presenting Rav Chaim's assertion that the Rambam disagrees with Tosfut. I'm presenting that as a, you know, it's just an assertion, a uh, you know, black box. I'm not in any way attempting to defend, um, to, defend to you um, Rav, Chaim's, uh, Rav, Chaim, Rav Chaim's claim that um, that they're right that the Ram disagrees, and the reason for that is that Rabhaim's evidence that the Ram disagrees is far from compelling, really far from compelling. Um, so you might ask, so if Rabhaim's evidence that the Ram disagrees with Tosfot is, in my opinion, not compelling, what justifies me in uh, what justifies me in saying that I think this is like the fundamental position which I build my whole conception of Jewish medical ethics and many, you know, and, and broader conceptions out of. So the answer, which I want to begin by saying today, is that while I think Rav Chaim's direct evidence is not compelling, I think that there is evidence of a position that disagrees with Tosfa very strongly. Um, in the I think there is evidence that the Ramam disagrees with Tosfa very strongly, even though I don't find Rav Chaim's specific arguments to be overwhelmingly compelling, and that's going to bring us to the source that I mistakenly um, failed to introduce last time. So the, the mission Oholot says the following. The woman who's having a difficult childbirth. So you dis- literally dismember the child and remove it and remove it uh, limb by limb in order to prevent it from, um, from causing the woman's death when, uh, when born. Why? Because her life precedes its. Yatsarubo, but at the point that enough of the infant has emerged to be, con- enough of the fetus has emerged for it to be considered an infant, um, right? This text is Robo, there are other texts that say Rosho, and a text that say Rosho Rubo. Doesn't matter to us. All that matters to us is that there is a point. Then, Ain no Ginbo. Then you cannot um, do anything. You cannot touch the, um, you can't touch the now infant in order to save the mother's life. Why? She'ain dochin nefesh vipen nefesh. Because you can't push one nefesh aside for another. Okay, so now on the surface, this Mishnah is um, really good evidence for um, for Tosfot as opposed to Rav Chaim's understanding of the Ramam, and really this undermines a lot of what I wanted to say, because what this says is, if we have on the one hand we have a principle you can't push one nefesh aside from the other. On the other hand, it says, you can choose the mother over the fetus. So we are making judgments. So really what we're saying is, you, you don't, you, right, that when we say, who says your blood is redder than his, what we really mean to say is that under many circumstances, you can't tell whose blood is redder, but under some circumstances, you can, such as when there's a conflict between a mother 
and the fetus. Right? So if you allow the distinction between the mother and the fetus, so then maybe we allow other distinctions as well. And that's where we got into the text, which is you know, the obvious, like really profound challenge to what I'm saying, which is the Mishnah in Horios, which says, Lisha, and Kohen Kodem Levi, and all those sorts of criteria. Right? So you end up saying, saying that, you're, you're, Rabbi Clapper, you said that this, the Gemara, which says it's a svara, is this intuitive, deep svara, which, is, you know, which has to be obviously true that all human lives are equivalent. But really, you have three texts against you. You have, a, uh, right, you ha- you have the mission Olos, which says you can make a distinction between the mother and the fetus. You have the text of Rabbi Akiva, which ends up saying that you can choose your life over somebody else's. And you have the mission of Hurios, um, right, which says, right, which says that there was a whole, 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 whole idea of um, right, whole, a whole list of things. So we could get out of it by saying, oh, right, the fetus is not a, right. That's because the fetus is not a nefesh, right. And now we could read the Mishnah as just saying, okay, you can't push aside one nefesh instead of another nefesh. But if it's not an nefesh, you can do it. So that's a bit of a problem because um, the um, the Rambam actually calls the fetus a nefesh in uh, right in one place. It doesn't hold up terminologically very well. But we could try that. But it's also a very dangerous approach because uh, right because it's no longer an obvious svara once we start making these distinctions. So here's the interesting thing, um, and this is picked up by Rav Chaim in a different essay. Um, but I think that it's, I think it's very connected. Rav Chaim says that when he explains this Mishnah, he says, right? So this is basically a quote of the first halach of the Mishnah. But instead of saying, he says, because the fetus is like a pursuer. Okay, now we're not going to spend the time trying to figure out why the fetus is like a pursuer and the infant is not. That would be a shear in its own right. And everybody addresses that question. What I want to point out, which you know, basically all the acronym immediately notice, is that what seems to be happening here is that the Rambam, given a choice between these two lines, right? He sees it as a choice. You can either say, or you can say, and he's not willing to resolve it by saying that's because the fetus is not an nefesh. He has to introduce yet another p- pasuk, which is not our issue, which is that there's another ex- exception to the rule you can't kill to save a life, which is that you can kill somebody who's categorized as a volitional pursuer, a rodef, in order to save a life. What matters to me is that the reason that Rav Chaim has to introduce, that Ramam has to introduce the category of rodef is because he has a presumption that you cannot kill a fetus to save the mother even though he understands perfectly well that somebody could argue that the mother's blood is redder. And that, I believe, is, is ultimately what drives, as opposed to the specific claim that Rechaim disagrees with Tosfut in the passivity case, uh, which I think is not um, per se convincing. What is convincing is that the Rambam, uh, right, when presented with a case where, right, where it seems like the Mishnah says we are explicitly choosing um, among human lives, the Ramam refuses to understand it that way, and instead introduces an external category called Rodev. Okay, now why does this matter to me so much, aside from establishing a basis for Rav Chaim's claim about the Rambam? So now I want to go back to the question that Dove asked at the end of last year, which is, 
if you claim that if you claim that the idea of um of who says your blood is redder is like the the ur idea the fundamental idea then how can you live with a system in which it is modified in so many ways it's modified by rodef and it's modified by right by the rule about abortion and it's modified by the rule you get to save your own life first and we'll have to figure out what we do with the mission in Horios. So the answer, I think, is um, to read the Gemara in a um, in a somewhat more um, perhaps um, nuanced way than we read it yesterday. Although I raised the question yesterday, I think when I raised the question, I didn't really understand how much how much was at stake. So the Gemara says, "Rotzeach gufe minolan." How do we know that um, that you're not allowed to kill to save your life? Svarahu. That's a svara. And then, as opposed to telling you the svara in words, it illustrates it via a story. And the question then is, what's the relationship between svara and law? So the Rambam says, and this is not something that um, that we need to defend now either. Although maybe we we'll need to put another share. Um, address. The Rambam says that the thing about law is that law is an abstraction. And as an abstraction, it will always be wrong in particular cases. Law is what is the best thing for most people under most circumstances in most times. So when you make law, right, you cannot, if I say you cannot translate ethics into law directly. Because ethics are, right, an ethical principle can be true in every circumstance. But once you translate it into a single legal statement, there's no way it can be true in every, circum- in every circumstance because that's not the way law functions. Law always ends up missing critical factors. So what the, the way the Rambam, I, the way I understand Rav Chaim reading the Rambam, reading the Gemara, which I think is correct, is that the Gemara says that the outcome of this case, that you can't kill somebody on the basis of, right, you, know, you can't kill somebody to prevent yourself from being killed, the outcome of that case is a svara. And now we have to figure out how we build the whole, and that svara is prior to Torah, but now we have to build a whole legal system that is consistent with that svara, as opposed to saying that that svara is embodied in this particular law, because there is no single law that can effectively embody a moral principle in all cases. There's no way you can ever get all cases right in a legal system. What you can do is you can try to build a system that gets as many cases right as, as possible. But the way you do that is often with a complicated principle. You have a rule, and that rule is qualified by another rule. So for example, there's a rule there's a rule that, um, right, who says your blood is redder? But then there's a complicated case about abortion. You might really be willing to say that your life is redder, but we really don't want for them. Now, let's watch the way the whole sort of functions according to the Ramam and Rechaim. Right? He goes out of his way to say that, you, right, that the way you think about the svara in this case of murder, is that you don't actually look at whose blood is redder. The svara functions as a way of preventing you from ever looking at whose blood is redder, because it says you ask the question legislatively, and the reason that you can't answer the question, the reason you can't murder to save a life, is that you don't know who the murderer will be and who the murderer will be. Now that's not at all the svara. The svara, as presented in the story, is how do you know that your blood is redder than his? Maybe his blood is redder than yours. But according to Rechaim, that's not what happens in law. What happens in law is when the legislators don't know whether it's you or him. So what's going on according to Rechaim 
is a translation of the svara into law in order to achieve the principles of the svara by means of the law. But it's not a it's not a legislation of the ethical principle. And so right, and that's I think that I think is a is a is a uh, a much better presentation than I gave last time, which I think and I think that's the response to um to Dove's question. I want to give one other analogy that might help uh, understand this. Um, this analogy I think is, is you know generally useful, so I'm not, I don't think I'm wasting anyone's time regardless. Uh, there is a wonderful work uh, called Never Pure by a, I think, a sociologist of science, I think is what he calls himself, named Stephen Chapin, uh, I think is currently at Harvard. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous book, it's one of my all-time favorite books. And it has a chapter in there about proverbs. How do proverbs function? And he says, like, people all assume that proverbs are true. And for example, a proverb that we, that we assume is true is that a stitch in time saves nine. And another proverb we assume is true is that haste makes waste. A proverb we assume is true is that opposites attract. And a proverb that we also assume is true is that birds of a feather flock together. So how is it that we constantly affirm the truth of obviously contradictory statements? So the answer is that um, proverbs, the truth value of proverbs is framed, right? Everyone assumes they're true, and your job is to figure out where they're true, not whether they're true. And as soon as I read uh, Professor Shapin's article about Proverbs, I said, oh my goodness, that helps me understand Gemara enormously. Right, that's what Gemara does. It takes, it has multiple statements, they appear to contradict, and it says, oh, okay, that's fine. Right, what we're gonna do is we're gonna make okimtas, right? We're gonna say this statement is true here, this statement is true there, right? Birds of a feather flock together in, right, in uh, the context of, you know, people looking for social support, but opposite tract in the case of, you know, in the case of romance, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever your okimta is. So saying that this svara is absolutely true doesn't mean that this svara is the thing you, that is, is the basis for deciding everything. It just means that you can't say that it's false and you have to decide, wait, what its scope is. So that would be another way of presenting the, uh, presenting the same thing. Um, Okay, again, the book is called Never Pure by Stephen Chapin. I highly recommend the book uh, entirely. Absolutely one of my favorite books uh, of all time. Okay, so that's what I want to set up as the, um, as the overall model for what I'm trying to, what I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying, uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we're trying to set up a legal system which, fun, which, which is consistent with a fundamental commitment to the idea that human lives are ontologically equal and that you cannot behave in such a way that, um, that violates that principle. So the question we talked about last time is, so why, you're tell, right, you, you told me that the Svara should yield Ben Petura's position, right? So what, what justifies us in, right? Doesn't Paschal and Krabi Akiva overrule it? So the answer is no. The legal derivation from the Svara yields Ben Petura's result, but that result is ethically counterintuitive, that let both people die instead of saving either of them. And so we come over there, Rabbi Akiva is, you know, is a counterforce which pushes the halakha back towards the ethical principle, because in fact, if you, let's say, flip a coin, you're not, a set, you're not you're the, the whole point of flipping a coin and randomizing is that you're not saying that one life is more valuable than another. You're saying that one life is more valuable than neither life. 
And the legal system gets to that result, even though the specific law derived in that, the, the specific legal formulation given in that context doesn't get you to, uh, doesn't get you to that result. So that's, uh, right, that's my argument that I can emerge from, right, the first three sources we have. I have a Gemara which says Svarahu. I have a Mishnah which says that you but also says that we choose the mother over the fetus. Big giveaway that the Ramam is not willing to say we just choose the mother over the fetus. Right? The Ramam needs a fancy external mechanism to get there and right to, to get there. And then um, and then we can also we can also say, okay, and so the rule of Akiva says that your life precedes his is also one of those limits and not a um, and not a not a contradiction to the underlying notion of ontological equality. So with that, um, with that um, as a given, and um, I should really stop and take questions, but I'm afraid that we won't get to what we need to. So I'm going to take all the questions at the end today. Um, so I have, I apologize if I'm running roughshod, uh, but I think I think I need to do one more step and then. Um, Maybe we'll have time to stop before the last step. But I really want to get truth is I really want to get through the last step today. So it may be that questions should either be on the chat and I'll respond to them as we go, or that I'll, you know, as always, I'll stay as, as long as necessary to answer questions afterwards. Okay. So the 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 thing that you know, so I got out of let's say Bahai Bahem, you know, that's a counterforce, and I got out of uh, Rabbi Kiva, and I got out of, in fact, turned the Mishnah in Horiot into a Raya that at least the Rama understood it that way, and I think it's very plausible. But the Rambam's understanding that way because he thinks endoch nefesh nefesh has to be the right is exactly the principle who says your blood is redder than his. But the mission Horios is a real problem. Mission Horios says So how can one possibly claim that it's a fundamental principle of Judaism and triage that you can't choose one life over another when there's a mission that says you choose one life over the other? So I want to begin by. Uh, talking about a set of responses to that. Now, I want to, uh, I want to, you know, remind you again that I'm not, a, I'm not engaging in the kind of halachic discourse I might in lots of other cases, which is to build things based on the weight of authority. What I, what, I, what I, all I need to do in the methodology I'm establishing, it might be we can meet that test too. But all I'm trying to do now is to say that, um, right, since. There's no possibility of engaging in ethical discourse and engaging in the broader medical community if you take the position, at least in the United States now, if you take the position that um, that you can choose men over women, or kohanim, right, or or kohanim over um, over or kohanim over Levim, um, So the um, right the answer is right. So you can't possibly do that. So the question is: Is there a position that is sustainable as a um, an acceptable, reliable halachic position which interprets the uh, which interprets the halacha my way, and if so, how does it come to terms with the mission harios? I respond to Ari's question. The Gemara prefers svara over a pasuk in principle, right? It says, right, lamali svarahu. So we always have a right. So if there's a svara, we right we prefer we prefer the svara. Okay, I mean obviously you know I could bring counter evidence, but that's a, a pretty good prima facie case. Okay, so uh, the first context is Shut Mayim Chaim. Shut Mayim Chaim is Barbe Chaim David Halevi, um, maybe more famous as a uh, the author of of the Shailu Chavad Asayel Charav of a Sephardi um, halacha series called Makor Makor Chaim, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. 
I think, um, you know, generally recognized as one of the extremely important poskim of the uh, in religious Zionism in the 20th century, um, and a fascinating figure because he took he took every question on, and in general he took it on intelligently. You don't always have to agree with him. I don't always share his presumptions, um, but he takes you know, but he's he's willing to face everything, and he you know generally has very intelligent things to say whether agree with him or not. So here he takes on you know an issue you know that's the issue of oh my goodness doesn't halacha discriminate against women? Okay, right. That's not a not a new thing that he's taking that he's t- that uh, to take on, and in particular he takes on what we might call the worst of the interpretations from uh, right from my moral perspective, which is the assumption that a the Mishnah means that you save if a man and a woman are both drowning you save the man, and the reason you save the man is because the man has more kedusha, and the reason the man has more kedusha is because women are pseudo from mitzvah seiv shazman grama. Right. So that is the that's the, that's the bugaboo he's trying to res, he's trying to respond to, okay? And he right and somebody wrote him a letter saying, isn't this true? Right? Isn't it obvious that Allah discriminates against women because the Mishnah says that you choose right that you that you choose men over women when it comes to saving them when they're drowning, and the basis for that given in the Bartanura, and it seems you know and it seems like yeah just what everybody agrees is because uh, women are pterovim so you're done, okay? Um, his response is. Right after the person said and this reason was ex- was accepted by everybody who came after the Bartadura. So the Rabbi says, Your rationale does not stand up to my understanding of halachic reality. Okay, and first of all, he says, You don't understand the reason women are we obviously say is that we apply it to tzitzis, and none of the rationales for given for him to apply well to tzitzis, that's fine. But he says, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm not interested in that. I don't, you know, we, this is Tommy Mitzvah, I can't tell you that. Okay, we're not, that's not our issue either. I just wanted to give you a context. Now he says, right, here's the real question. Right, does, right, does, does halacha give um, priority to saving men or women? And he says, Lest you, God forbid, think that this mission Horios is in some way, you know, in some way insults or damages the rights of women. No, I'm not going to tell you that, right? And he goes through a whole long, a whole long um, explanation as to why it would be perfectly legitimate morally to say that you save men over women, which has nothing to do with kedusha, but has entirely to do with uh, with social with social with social roles. Okay, that's right, and he says. Right, he says a rational person could say, um, right, um, that, um, and in fact, we'll see that there are post are still saying this today, that if two people arrive, and even though they're ontologically equal, but one of them is of greater social significance, that right, he said the general, the army, and a private show up in the in the triage tent together. So we're going to treat the general first, and no one understands, right, and no one sees this as a violation of the ontological value of the private. And that's all that's going on with men and women, men of more social importance. Okay, you can decide you know, whether you find that a, a compelling apologetic um, or not. I don't, but okay. But now here's what he says. Kolzek Kasafti, I wrote this whole long explanation. Um, right, this is the underlined section. To explain the principle of the Mishnah 
as the right according to the way the Ramam explained the Mishnah. Well, the Fize, and according to this, according to the Ramam, it really works out that women have a lower social position in terms of religious value. But now he says, but we don't paskin like this Mishnah. The Ramam writes all these distinctions about Kohen and Levi, but never says anything about men and women. And the Torah also left it out. And the Beis Yosef, even though in the Beis, right, the Shul, in the Beis Yosef, he explains the Ramam's position as we just did, in the Shulchan Aruch, and even says that lahachiyot means to save them from drowning. But the Shulchan Aruch, he leaves this out completely. And in fact, he says, right, there is, right, it seems to him that most poskim simply ignore this Mishnah. They ignore the distinction between men and women, and they, no one cites it, or the distinction between Kohanim and Levim, or poskim, in the context of saving from drowning, in the context of life-saving. Uh, so I should say that I first heard this argument from Rabbi Emanuel Rechman of Blessed Memory. Uh, I got in trouble because I, I pushed it uncritically on a, one of the early uh, male.jewishes and then had to go and discover it. You know, Rova Postgim, okay, but it's not like, not all the Postgim, but it is true that it's not in the tour and it's not in, I mean, even though the Mechaber quotes in the Beis Yosef, it's not in the Shulchan Aruch and it's not in the Rambam. Okay, the problem is, but the Rambam says it. That's no, how the Ramah says it. Elish Ramah hiskir din zu. Right, if they're both rotsim to drown in the river, then you save the man first. So that sounds like the that sounds like the Ramo at least does paskin like this Mishnah. But the Lavush says that the word rotsim is uh, right is clearly not the interpretation given by the Bartanura that it's two people drowning. It's if two people what it really means is two people running away from attempts at rape. And the question, right, and they're trying to drown themselves rather than surrender. And then there's a, the Mishnah says that, um, and that this is easily a socially dependent thing, that homosexual rape was seen as a, uh, as a, you know, as you, saving somebody from homosexual rape was seen as an obligation prior to heterosexual rape. I think that is easier to defend on sociological grounds. Um, and that's the way the Lush understands the Ramah. And Rechaim Devalevi says, and look at this, right? He says, what, how you might think the Lavush seems like a wild interpretation of the Ramah, but Rotsin Litbo is a real, a real word. And it says to him, he seems to him, says Rechaim Devalevi, Nir Lanios Dati, Shalavush Tama al Ramah, Lama Niskakla Skira Lachazot, Shishvitua Kolaposkim. Why did he mention this halacha, which everyone else, meant, everyone else rejected? So in the end, Rechaim Devalevi thinks that the Lavush is right, that the Ramah can't possibly be. Can possibly be quoting um, this this halacha because no one else did, and so the Rama must mean what the Levush uh, what the Levush said. In the end, he says, "I have another explanation for this." Why did everybody? Why did all the poskim skip this halacha? It's an open mishnah. because it's obviously counterintuitive, especially according to the Rambam, that the ground is that men are chayiv and all mitzvot. But hang on a sec. Maybe the man isn't keeping mitzvot. And the woman is highly learned and keeps all the mitzvot. So how can you possibly, right, how can you possibly say that you save a man who isn't fulfilling his responsibilities over a woman who is? So how can you just say the halacha is that men take priority? You should have to examine it case by case. So because this Mishnah makes no sense ethically, 
Therefore, this Mishnah, we simply don't paskin like it. It's out of the halachic system. There's no difference because we simply reject this Mishnah. Okay. That's um, that's Rav Chaim David, um, David Halevi. Okay, but you could tell me, Er Chaim David Halevi, um, he is um, he right he he is uh, right. You'll see he goes on and he says this. You know, in even even he even has a position right. He finds a position that where even where women come first for all contexts. But you can say Rechaim David does this in an obviously polemical context. Right, he's trying to respond to claims that Judaism is discriminatory against women. So maybe he's only engaged in apologetics and he doesn't really mean it. Secondly. Um, his argument, you know, so his argument is the same as mine. He says it doesn't make any sense intuitively. Obviously, we should judge people by their, not by the, some kind of abstract condition of Kedusha, but instead you should judge them by the Kedusha they've achieved. Now, that only makes sense if you assume that the criteria, uh, right, that there are no criteria that can interfere with ontological value, right? The ontological value is equivalent. And so the only kind of Kedusha that can matter is Kedusha that relates to achieved value as opposed to intrinsic value. So all I've shown is that look, it's very nice. There was one, uh, there was one uh, great Sephardi post, religious Zionist posseg in the 20th century, um, who at least with regard to questions of gender, because he's not interested in addressing the question of Kohanim and Levim in this context, although I think that halachically it will follow, shares my intuition. Okay. Progress. Okay. So let's move on to the Sicilianer. As Eliezer, uh, you know, I would say is you know, although he he lives in the modern world, famously as the posik for uh, for Shari Tzedek, and he is a very strong religious Zionist. Um, but on lots of other issues, I think it would be fair to describe him as a fairly, you know, I guess you would, you would call him as you know as a religious Zionist, but also uh, somebody who really lives very comfortably in the and and almost in, within the moral discourse of the Haredi world. As opposed to Rechaim David Levi, who is addressing questions like this, and understand, right, and really, like it bothers him because the people asking these questions are asking questions that bother him too. I don't know that Sitzeliezer would be bothered by the same sorts of questions. So let's see how the Sitzeliezer deals um, deals with this uh, Mishnah. So here's what he says. Uh, right, this is his general article on triage. So I'm going to begin by telling you. Rama left it out, right? And he only put, right? And, and in fact, his only context is in, the, right? It, the only time he mentions any of these things is in the context of distributing food at stuck on. He never talks about drowning in rivers at all. Okay, and all the Rambam, right? And he goes through the same thing with the Beis Yosef. Ah, but the Rama, right? So we're, we're tracking essentially the exact same thing, uh, exact same thing as the, uh, as Rechaim David Levi. And now look, here comes the Levush, saying the Ramah didn't really mean that. Um, right, so now we can't prove anything from the Ramah either. And so now he says, hang on a sec, let's take a look. What does the Mishnah really mean when it says Lahachiyot? I know that the Bartanura says it means to save them from drowning in a river, but is that really what it means? So the answer, he says, is that there's a, um, there's a Gemara in Ksubos. And the Gemara in uh, the Gemara in Ksubos 
says that um, that when it comes to lahachayot, you choose female orphans before male orphans. And in one context, it says that the ksut of an eshet chaver, you have to choose between uh, between uh, providing adequate clothing for the wife of a talmidei chachama, or the pikuach nefesh of an amaaretz, or saving the life of an amaaretz. Um, right. So, so and the Gemara says you choose the you choose the um, the clothing of an eshet chaver over the pikuach nefesh of an of an of an amaaretz. So and so here again. So the tzitzilator says what? That can't possibly be. Nobody would really think that you choose to clothe one person over saving somebody else's life exactly. And therefore, the Mishnah must be over there. When it says l'hachiyot there, l'hachiyot there must mean to distribute food in a time of famine and not actually to save somebody's life. And we're talking about, you know, if you want to know, they're talking about allowing people to stay in this community and be fed rather than forcing them to go scavenge somewhere else. And therefore, he says that must be what the Mishnah means, also. And so, the reason that, right, or actually, he says the, he says the Aksumir Shabri says, so the, um, so the Gemara there, which seems to suggest that women and men are, um, are equal, even women, t- right, that women take priority first, he says, it must be the Ram understood that Gemara as contradicting the Gemara, uh, the, the Gemara here, right? Asher Biglal Stira Shiyeshna Bazer, Ben Asugid Exubos, the Ben Asugid so you have to resolve the contradiction in one way or the other. But the Ramam thought that, but the Ramam thought there's a simple solution, which is that, you know what? The Mishnah Horio sets up one order and the Bright and Ksubo sets up a different order. Okay, so opposed to Rechaim David Alevi, who takes the premise, right? It's just a moral premise that has to be true. The, um, the uh, the Ram the Ramam thinks there's a contradictory sugya and the only right and therefore he ends up passing against the Mishnah on the basis of that contradictory sugya. Okay, so now we have two poskim who say the Mishnah in Hurios is um, completely irrelevant, um, irre- irre- irrelevant um, halacha. Um, okay, and it, right, and he really ends up saying only two possibilities: either the Ramam passes against that sugya completely, or the um, Right or the or the or the Raman um, Paskins that the whole context there is only about uh, is only about not life saving, or third possibility, which is the one that we'll see that Rosh adopts, which is that the only way you could do it is if you actually knew the exact spiritual condition of everybody involved. Okay, so now we have Rechaim David Levi rejects this position out of hand. The Tzitzel rejects it, finds a contradictory um, sugya, and also ends up. Saying that um, that uh, that it doesn't make moral sense to him that we would evaluate it by ontological value, but by claiming ontological different values as opposed to um, as opposed to uh, achievement in life, so you can't possibly use it. So the third position that uh, I'm going to give you, and obviously we don't have time to go through it in depth. This is the the Harut Natan is Rabbi Gestetner. Rabbi Gestetner, just to give you his biography, is um, here we are. Rabbi Gestetner is um, he is the rabbi of, right, the, he's, he is the the the, um, the the rabbi of Shikuna Bedat Yisrael Bnei Brak v'gam Yisad Yeshiva b'Mad Berosha right so he's a also v'gam Hayamitoshave Mechashuvei Hadarinim b'Veitino Shalom or Rav Wesner okay so this is the very center of Bnei Brak Charit 
Haredi, um, Haredi life. And he has asked the question in terms of Hatzalah, the Shinish Alma and Sheikh Hebran Hatzalah, and the Kareem Hatzalah Nefashot, Im Yesh Din Kadima Batzalat Ish Kodim Ishav according to Levi. And guess what his answer is? No. Why? Because we don't paskin like the Mishnah and Haredis. Okay, and he has his own he has his own grounds for saying that we don't paskin like we don't paskin like the Mishnah in um, in Hurios. And I think that the um, I think the real reason that we don't paskin like the Mishnah Hurios, but you don't have to buy it. I think I don't, we don't have time to do it in depth. Um, the real reason we don't paskin like the Mishnah Hurios is that it's against the Mishnah Olos. The Mishnah Olos says, "Ein doche nefesh bifen nefesh." So how is "Ein doche nefesh bifen nefesh" compatible? With the um, compatible with the claim that we choose ish uh, kodem leisha. So, what I want to show, what I want, what I want to show, is that I don't think I have to make that um, mishnah compatible with the vision of halacha I'm constructing because I think there is a very legitimate position, uh, which is taken by a poskim from across the ideological spectrum. Uh, right, I could start with the Rackman, right? But uh, you know, or Rackman through Rabbi Gestetner with the Sicily Ezra and Rechaim David Levi in between, that simply says that we don't paskin like that Mishnah. Okay, right, Sarah asked, and it's a good question. You know, do they, in the end of the day, if they have an obvious Talmud Chacham and an obvious Amaretz, would they still not say it? So I think the answer is that um, that except for the Sicily Ezra, yes, the Sicily Ezra. I have to look at Rabbi Gestetner again. Has some ambiguity about about that but in, pra- in practice i think the answer is nobody would nobody would really allow it um and even theoretically i think that most of them believe that that mishnah is just as a sicily as rechaim david levy says and the sicily ezra says in what i think is his primary option that um it's just nidchasa mehalacha okay so i'm going to build my system on the premise that the mission hurios is halachically irrelevant okay so now i want to get to the the um, the chiddush of this year, um, and then right that's that's the point I want to start building on for next time. So what I the problem that I set that that I hit when I started trying to write about this issue, uh, a couple of um, I don't know I think I first I wrote a first draft something like three weeks ago, maybe even more than that it was before Pesach, um, was that I could come up with a system that matched my sense of ethics and, you know, it might be very beautiful and maybe I would think it's true, but the doctors in the field were telling me that essentially what it would be doing would be saying is that what they were doing was Yehurik Val Yavor. And Josh Skutsky also pointed this out on the SBM listserv, like, you know, that one of the purposes of SAC is to enable from doctors to be able to do their work in good conscience. Now, the other hand, What's the point of halacha? It's just verifying ratifying what the what you know what any what the system does, right? You know, puppy dog, puppy dog moral leadership. So the question is, is there a way to create a space where there's the things? This is what we would tell you to do if, if we were in control. These are the and the things you should argue for, and these are the things that if you lose the argument, you can still do. Is there any basis in halacha for accepting the moral conclusions of a legitimate process, even though they're not the conclusions you would have reached halachically um, um, to start with. And then if there is, we'll have to figure out what the boundaries are. So I want to read you a tshuva from Zilberstein, um, the author of Cheshuk um, who is Rebel Yashiv's son-in-law, 
And I think, you know, I think he would count as a, you know, as a very mainstream posig in the Haredi world, at least. Not so much necessarily for our world. I want to read to you what he says, because this, I think, is something that um, is worth building off if you think that this is compelling. So here's what he says. What's the order of priorities for saving people from drowning? Literal lifeboat ethics. Sheila, Mahim Seder Adifiyut Latsil Anashim Tsirim, young people, Zakinim and old people, Nashim Vitak, women and children, Shamdim Baniya, who are standing in the boat, Shimatrilitvobayam, which is beginning to sink. Aim Kifi Masha Shaninu Bahoriot, do we follow the order in Horiot? Oshema Kifiya Mukubal Bolam, Shinashim Uktanim Kodulukulam. Maybe we follow what he believes is the accepted order of the world, women and children first, and elders before youngers. All right, so straightforward clash between Horiot and, um, and, um, and what he sees, what the questioner sees as the moral norms of the world he lives in. And Rabbi Zilberstein is not going to say the mission in Horiot doesn't, doesn't apply the halacha. He thinks that all the distinctions in Horiot are fine. Okay, but he says, Nira, We can make a distinction because the Mishnah is talking about a case where you're, you're passing by a river and you see people drowning, and you on the, on the banks of the river are trying to figure out who should I save first. Right? He has all the things that, you know, that drive, the Rechaim Deber Levi thinks are insupportable, he thinks are perfectly fine. Maybe he would buy Rechaim Deber Levi's apologetic, I don't know. Aval he says, real son, kol Everybody on the boat paid. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Avur Nesiyah, they paid for their ticket. Ve'avur Darkeh Hatzalah. And they paid for all the life-saving measures. Shehem Sirot Hatzalah, meaning they paid for the lifeboats. Ve'avur Atipul Shalat Sevet. And for the concerns, right, they paid for the attention of the staff. Dainu Malachim Rav HaChovel, right, meaning the sailors and the captain. Uvazeh, and in this area, you can't, right, the fact that men are holier makes no difference. Because whether you're Mekudash or whether you're, a per, you're, you're an unholy fellow traveler, they have a financial right to be saved. And you can't deprive somebody of their, right, of their, um, of their right their financial right to be saved in accordance with, right, just because you're holier. And therefore, we should behave the way is, accept, is standard in the world. That, right, um, that, that uh, saving him is, right, is more yail. We'll leave what that means for the moment. It takes priority. And that's what all of them paid on the premise that we would write that this is how well, this was the order of being saved okay and what I, he, tell, he says what people tell me what people tell me is that the moral presumption in the world is that we save women and children first and then the elders why because they're they're weaker um right and um and, and the the gvarim uh, have a better chance have a, have a better chance of being saved then he says you know what i can even sort of make sense of this because maybe the, maybe the elderly and the children and the women will all go will all go nuts and interfere if we don't have this happen, right? So right and we right and and um, 
And that's why it's not bad policy. He goes on. He says, So you might think this only applies to people who are paid. No. Even volunteer people coming to save people drowning should behave in the same manner. Why? Because if they don't do it in that order, then nobody will get saved because there'll be massive confusion. And even the Talmud Chacham, who has the real Skudak Dima, he'll get hurt when, where it, when, the, when the fight breaks out. And then he says, another svara is, if the people were trained to do it this way, right? So, so if you tell them to act against their training, that could cause damage also. At the end of the day, he says, we don't follow the mission of Horeos here, not because we don't paskin against it, but because everyone paid. And and it's not an irrational order. And additionally, it says maybe the men won't drown. Okay. So what do we do with this? Uh, obviously, this is not a tshuva that appeals to my moral instincts uh, in the way that, um, let's say, Rechaim David Levi's outcome does, or Ritzitz Eliezer, or even, uh, or, or, or even Rav, Rav Gishtekner. Um, but now I have to talk about, so when you go to a hospital, so you're right, you, when you go to a hospital, you're paying. So maybe going to a hospital is just like, you know, being traveling on a boat. And by going to a hospital, right, by being a paying customer in a hospital, you expect to be served by the staff on the basis of equality. Maybe as long as hospitals are state funded. So if we have an agreement among citizens, um, right, as to what the order is, so whatever agreement we have among citizens is, um, is binding. In terms of the question of priorities, so we're not dealing with the hard case, right? That'll deal next time, where we're talking about removal, right? Removal of um, of care. But so long as we can keep it in the realm of who are we saving first? Um, so it sounds like that um, Rav, uh, that Rav Zilberstein and Rav Yashiv think that there that you can acquire a right to be saved, and so long as you have an equal right to be saved then all the criteria in the mission of Hurios disappear. And all it has to do is be a, you know, and it seems to me a reasonable extension of the argument that, you know, that any, that any democratic country that sets out a policy, as long as the policy is rational, that we all, right, that we have a schut based on, right, based on the notion that we are all partners. Uh, we are all partners in the country. Now, the question we have to think about is whether this is really, whether we really want to think about a right to be saved as having a, um, a right to be saved as being subject to purchase, uh, right? You know, intuitively the notion that there is this fundamental notion about priorities and then that fundamental notion about priorities right, is subject to being reversal, but through money, it, um, it, it really, really doesn't sit well with me. But what you can see is that there's a way, right? But if you could, Conceive it, leave aside the money issue, which I right, and the particularistic issue, both of which don't sit well with me. But just talk about being members of a society with expectations, right? Members of right. There can be lots of ways in which you acquire the schut to be um, 
right? The schut to do it, right? So I see that uh, I see that lots of great questions on the chat about uh, right how you find out what right you know, how you find out what the expectations are, how they develop is you know is there a circularity? Um, maybe right, Ellen's right that you know that he doesn't really just mean money. Uh, I, I'm afraid he really means money, um, but I don't think that we have to limit it to the way he uses it. Uh, okay, it's a nice clear that only Durabanan could be Harry. It's you know could be. Uh, I don't you know he doesn't make any of those arguments at all. He doesn't make any of those arguments at all. What I want to say is that this seems to me a basis for claiming, right? A whole bunch of bases, right? He says that essentially, right? You know that you can function the way you're trained. Now, what allows? Right? Why are why are Jewish sailors allowed to be trained in a, in accordance with non-halachic orders of precedence, such that you say if we try and tell them to do it halachically, it'll mess up all their training? So let's create our own schools for right, you know, our own schools for EMTs and for, I, you know, again, I, I, this is, um, for lack of a better word, this is not a good shuvah. Laniyotati, um, but I think that the underlying intuition it expresses, um, in terms of halacha, is a really interesting one, which is the idea of two of them. One is that the, one is that there that uh, we can, in certain cases, uh, it, to a certain extent, we can suspend um, our conception of what the, what, what the halakha would say, even in cases like this, and instead go along with what established practice is, so long as it has higayon. Um, and secondly, that we can talk about issues of priority in Hatzalah differently, perhaps, than we talk about uh, question, questions of murder um, and that there's some issues of rights may get involved there that allow us to make choices in ways that we can't make choices about death. Right? Those are the two things I wanted to get out of this, um, to get out of this Juva. Uh, I would have a hard time in ethical discourse claiming it as a precedent, but in halakhic, but in halakhic discourse, uh, I think that it does function. And I don't, you know, I don't know that anyone, I don't know that, I don't know that it's controversial. I don't know that everyone addressed it in quite that way. I can think of analogies to it. Uh, the analogy that immediately came to mind is that Sitz Eliezer, um, who addresses the question of whether there's a violation of Lashon Hara when a clerk reads somebody, or copies somebody's medical records and therefore sees their medical records, which include information that that clerk has no need to know. So according to the basic rules of the Chavis Chaim, that should be illegal. Well, the answer is no, the bureaucracy needs to function. And the bureaucracy is allowed to if the bureaucracy determines that this is the efficient way for a healthcare system to function, so then we don't talk about whether right, should, you don't, the, the clerk doesn't have to justify every single thing they do and say, it's abs- is it absolutely necessary for me to know this thing about that person? The clerk can do their job of copying it because that's, right, that's the way the medical system is set up. So I think that's another context in which working within the medical system has, uh, has, value, halachic, has value halachically that enables you to in some way work within the ethical assumptions of the system as opposed to um, as opposed to you know engage in a critique of first, from first principles in every case. I should say this is something I'm very bad at myself, you know, functioning within systems, uh, you know, without without asking pri- priority questions. It's a, you know, I, I I was a challenging employee when I was an employee. Um, so but right, so those are analogies. But I want to for now I want to set it out. Right. I think that 
he, he, that this tells you that it's possible to make an argument like this within halacha, and um, and it's, and I think I, I tried to establish that it's possible to make to set up halacha in a way which fundamentally ignores, absolutely ignores the mission harios as a factor in life saving, and those are the premises with which I want to go into the next year, which I'll hopefully I'll schedule in the next few days um, for next right, which we'll try and say okay, given given that I'm going to work on the premise that I have in fact correctly identified the ethical presumption of the system and justified it um, within, right, within internal halakhic discourse, I'm allowed to use it that way. And given that I found an argument within the system that would enable us not to insist that everything we think be implemented for people to be able to function within it, so then how will we address the really hard cases coming up in the context of uh, triage? Hopefully fewer cases than we thought would be uh, in the, um, in going forward in the case of the coronavirus pandemic and specifically the allocation of um, ventilators. Okay, that was the, uh, the whole of what I wanted to say. I apologize that I talked the whole time. Uh, I'm just trying to call the chat up so I know what I'm missing. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jerry. I'm not sure that was the comment I wanted necessarily. <laughs> But I hope it. Uh, I, I hope. I hope that was that was not a uh, you know like that we're totally out of control. That we've derailed just because we're not on you know specifically on the halachic grounds. Okay, so I'm going to stop now, and um, now you know ask away. Rav are you uh, familiar with the Vat Hatzalah, which operated during World War II to save Talmidei Chachamim? Weissmandel. Yes. Yes. But, you know, they faced this very same question. They had money, and who are they going to save? And they ended up saying, we're going to save the Talmud Chachamim. Yeah, that was a very, that was a, uh, very, that, you know, that was, that was very controversial. Right. And they took that position very strongly. Um, what I will say offhand, to the, uh, first, hand, first response to that, we'll, we'll talk about more, you know, as we, as we go on is that I always quote Rav Moshe Tendler's article in a work called Kvotarav, in which he says that there's a difference between communal decision-making and individual decision-making. And communities are, and communals, communities are entitled to make actuarial decisions as opposed to, uh, as opposed to in, in, um, individual decisions. And so I would have a lot of trouble. I'd have a lot of trouble with Vat Hatzala if they were if all they were doing was saving people. But if, you, if they took the position that they were saving a culture, right, and they're making a policy decision on a cultural level, as opposed to individual level, then I would be much more amenable to that kind of decision. I think that would be my first level. What, without saying whether I think Rabbi Weissmandel was right or not, and whether that was particularly right or not, I, my... I think you know people do things like that. Probably get a lot of things right and a lot of things wrong. Probably the, you know, and I wasn't there. Uh, there are things that I've read that seem right and there are things I've read that seem wrong. I don't want to make a blanket thing. That's my my first level is that uh, that I'm dealing now with you know with the with the assumption that we're just dealing with the value of people. Now, well, this will get dangerous because contemporary postgenerational Schechter specifically will try to reinterpret the Sugi and Horiot as social value. And we sort of kind of like suggested that. And I would rather not let the mission of hurry up back into the discussion at all. <laughs> uh, right? I'd rather say we got rid of it, you know, it, it's you know and let it let it let it let it stay where let it stay where it is. Um, 
right? Um, you know, Ellen's right about prioritizing citizens, right? Think, right? Questions like that, which are related to the lifeboat issue, right? Because maybe maybe citizens have a right to the medical care of your of their country, right? That's they're a partnership that way, but non-citizens don't. Uh, I would much rather say that those that you know that any deviations from the right from the basic rule have to be grounded in very explicit needs of the community as opposed to value, right? And I'd be very suspicious of claims that this is about the need of the community as opposed to about a claim about value of the person. The, the very last shuva that you spoke about, where he talks about the training of the sailors and about the number and about the women interfering, that whole discussion, that whole shuva could have taken place anywhere. It didn't have anything to do with Torah as far as I could see. Once he got off into the rights of the passenger who paid money, you're on to a practical discussion of what shall we do. It could, it could happen in any community. That same discussion, it, it, the fact that we're talking about Torah seemed irrelevant. Yes. So I, I think that um, what happened in that tshuva, you know, in a sense, is since he doesn't seem to start with the basic notion that ein dochen nefesh nefesh is a deep moral principle, so there's nothing to fall back on. Right. Once you're right. I, I think that's a, one of the reasons. I don't think it's a good tshuva. Yeah, uh, I really, I really, really don't like it. But as a, but as a window into the kind of arguments you can make halachically, even with a moral basis, I think that's valuable, right? That right that you talk about that maybe talking about priorities about in life saving are not the is not the same thing as choosing among lives, because maybe right. But I, I'll talk about it next week. I don't think that the purchased right to it is the right way to think about it. Okay. Right, I, I'm, and I'm going to try and develop alternate models. Uh, but this is a critique. We'll see that you know that um, Ravasher Weiss has made um, has made the same critique. Um, you know, not not surprisingly, Ravasher Weiss, you know, I would think you know, and the analogy to Ravasher Weiss is somewhere more like Rechaim David Alevi um, than you know, you know, somewhere between Rechaim David Alevi and Tzitzeliezer, maybe, or even more towards on Rechaim David Alevi's side, and much not and not um, not Rabbi Zilberstein at all. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Rabbi Weiss. Uh, it just finds it, you know, um, you know, right? You know, it's just, right. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't fit with, doesn't work in one kishkas to yeah. say that we decide issues of this moral weight on the grounds of of a, of a monetary right. Right. But he just tells you, like, you know, that it's not a very that, that the there's space in halacha for arguments along those lines. Let's see if we can make them better. All right. Okay. That's what I want to try to argue next time. Okay. okay. Thank you. Other questions. Um, if I may, I think the important part of the, the last tshuva is what you said about the systems, that it could be that the halakha for an individual by the side of the river trying to choose which of two people to save is a completely different situation than a hospital who is dealing with thousands of people at a time and needs is an, and is in the business of being efficient and trying to save as many lives as they can efficiently they may have completely different considerations um, and that the, that maybe it's not even applicable, the, the one individual by the side of the river case. Yes. So I think there are two ways to do that. This is, this is hat tipping for next, for next week. Uh, right. One way is, is the, you know, is right where it, I talked about with, um, with Jerry is maybe communal decision-making is totally different than individual decision-making. And the other is maybe we can talk about maybe efficiency of medical care is a halachic value in its own right. And it's not the same kind of value as, 
it's not the same kind of value as a, it's not that the individual has a right to care, but it's that the caregivers have a right to use the right have a right to work efficiently. Yes, right, and a responsibility to yes. to work efficiently. And, right. And so that's the line right. that I want to work work. I, I want that's the line that I right now. You know, I, I haven't mm -hmm. I haven't started preparing for next week's sure yet. But the line right the, the line that that I find most promising is to think about it. Um, right, that the the perspective to think about it is from the caregivers, and that the caregivers have at least a right and maybe an obligation or some combination thereof to use the right to deliver care efficiently. Mm -hmm. right? and, the right. and they're not is, right? they're not being surprised by this situation. This is they are in the profession of dealing with these cases, and they, they, it makes sense that they would think about it differently than someone who happens to find themselves in that situation. Uh, that's not quite, you know, that's a different issue because you know, these cases are unprecedented and, you know, part of the interest, you know, part of the, the thing you discover is, you know, part of the reason that you need responses and this, if you listen to the dialogue, you know, by Jason Wiener and Dr. Kenneth Prager uh, that was put on last week is, you know, that the doctors, and I have the same conversations, the doctors are in grave moral distress mm -hmm. uh, because they're not used to situations like this. Um, and the... And hospitals have, you know, and states have crisis standards of care that are not at all the same as they use anywhere else. And most of them have never been implemented before, and they're hoping they won't be implemented now. Um, right? For example, mm -hmm. New York State, people have been circulating in New York State, put out draft regulations. But they're just recommendations, you know, from a commission that Roy Blake served on. But no one ever, right, no one, no one bothered enacting them into law or even into the regulations. One of the things Dr. Prager talked about, which is really important, is that um, that behaving in accordance with hospital regulations or healthcare provider regulations doesn't insulate you against malpractice suits. And malpractice law is not does is not set up to account for circumstances like this, uh, right? There's no, no. You know, there's no uh, right or civil suits for murder, right? So even if you decide the ethical thing to do is to transfer a respirator from one patient to another. But the law might see that as murder and hold, right, hold you responsible, right? So, I don't, I don't know at all that it's true that doctors have thought about this. I think that doctors are experiencing it now, and I think in general, halachically, my contention has been that um, there's a value to having people whose job it is is to learn and study Torah and have a perspective which isn't so immediately immersed because doctors are very invested that what they do is justified, and once you do it the first time. You're very invested in making right. You, know, you don't want to think that I killed somebody yesterday, right? right. So you end up. But right. on the other hand, uh, they live it, and you know, and I'm, and, I, and if you haven't actually been through the experience of making that moral choice, so yeah, I think that there's a real limit if you're when you're telling people to make really hard moral choices, and you never have to make that choice, and they tell you, "Wow, that feels really wrong," and you say, "Yes," but I read the text as saying that that <laughs> it's right. That's also a very hard thing to do. So I think that what we right. need is uh, you know is intense dialogue between between Postgame and doctors. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, um, other questions? Yeah. Um, I was just looking at the at the Mishnah and Harayot, um, and um, if you look at the language there, so it says Ha'ish Kodem Leisha Achayot Vashevavida. So it's specifically talking about um, books like Lotamur Al Damarecha and and Hashavavida, right? Um, which, if I recall, those are both halachot, which in the Torah are written in terms of re'echa, right? 
Uh, and the Talmud is always written in the language of, is generally addressed to men, right? So you could argue that, that they're interpreting Rayaka as you, as you give priority to your, uh, to your kind, right? So men should save men first, and then you, you, could, you could read this to, to possibly mean that women should save women first. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's possibly a... Uh, I, I don't know any case halakhically where we interpret Rayecha as imposing, you know, as allowing each group to prefer its own as opposed to setting a standard of in-group and out-group. Right, but, but remember, this, this is just a, a halacha cited in the Mishnah, which nobody really ever cites a halacha, right? It could be that there was one Tana who held that way, uh, and, uh, you know. Okay, it's, you know, I, I find it very hard to believe that that's true halakhically. Is there, is there Gemara on Harayot? Yes, but okay. it doesn't discuss this at great length. Uh-huh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's very clever, but I, don't, I, I can't say that I think there's any real possibility it's true. Uh, you know, the bigger question is going to be how we deal with Jews and non-Jews in terms of Reyecha, right? And that's, you know, the answer is Miri, right? Who says that Shavu Sabeda applies too. Right. Um, okay, great. Other questions? Um, okay. As always, people are welcome to uh, email me questions Afterward, this, this is a work in progress, as you can tell. I do hope that something in writing will emerge from it uh, in the, you know, at, at when we finish this year, but, um, but I'm still thinking tentatively. So all the challenges you can think of should please be emailed me during the week. And I will try to set out a schedule for, um, for next week uh, sometime, I guess, sometime bef either, either before Shabbos or, um, or early on Sunday. Uh, if I don't speak to you before, then have a great job with everybody. Okay, thank you, Rabbi. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for suggesting this, Jerry. You're welcome.